Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Well, I must say that this is actually one of the last times for a few months that we are going to say、uh, hello to you from Johannesburg, because from what I understand, you are on the verge of、uh, packing up and leaving for a little bit. Tell us a little about where you're going. I'm going to Budapest in Hungary、um, to teach a course at, the, at Central European University, where、um, where Dan Large, you know, a previous podcast guest, also is.、Um, so yeah, it's it's I'm very excited about it and slightly terrified. I can imagine being alongside Dan Large is、uh, is quite impressive. <laughs> For those of you not familiar with.、Uh, Professor Large, he is—he's、uh, really a rock star in the China Africa space. One of the the leading experts on Sino-Sudanese relations. We've had him on the show a number of times. So you will be in some very good Sino-African company when you arrive in Budapest. So from next week, we will be on in Budapest. <laughs> okay. So hey, today we're going to be talking about really one of the more sensitive issues in the China-Africa relationship, and we thought it would be a good time to look at natural resource extraction because this is one of the issues. I would say in the top maybe three or four of all of the issues related to China's engagement in Africa, come up as the most sensitive. In part because a lot of people interpret China's natural resource extraction strategy in Africa akin to neo-imperialism, neo-colonialism, and it's this、uh, it's this often misunderstood. Uh, aspect of the relationship, but at the same time, it may be a more terrifying aspect of the relationship by virtue of the fact that they are operating in a very much in a gray area, and we're going to talk about that today. Two stories in particular came up that crossed our radar that we thought would be interesting. One was a decision by the government of Guinea-Bissau to put a five-year moratorium on timber exports, and then separately. Uh, there was this excellent article by Wang Wang Xiaoxue、uh, for the International Institute、uh, for Environment and Development, where she talks about the role of China in Africa's informal economy. So we'll get into both of those two points right there. First, let's talk about this Guinea-Bissau decision that came down last week,、uh, and I thought it was a little bit of a loaded. Um, you know, headline on the Africa report, and this is my frustration when we talk about this issue. And Kobus, as a media scholar,、uh, I'd like to get your take on this. So the headline was: Guinea-Bissau declares logging moratorium as illegal trade to China rises. Now that's a very provocative headline, in part by linking China to the illegal trade. But if you read into the top paragraph of the article, it talks about how Chinese demand—it's the demand. Is aided by complicit politicians and senior army officials, and so in some ways, I felt like the more pressing part of that story isn't the demand from China. Actually,、uh, some of it may be legitimate, some illegitimate, but really, it's the lack of governance on the Guinea-Bissau side. And this is one of the consistent themes that we see across the natural resource extraction topic in Africa: is the fact that. The the governance issue is what drives so much of the illegality.、Uh, did that headline bother you as much as it bothered me, or am I being a little too sensitive here? Yeah, it bothered me as well. I mean, you know, kind of, it's a good example of what media people, media studies people, call call kind of, you know, kind of unfair framing or you know, kind of or, or skewed framing in the sense that you know, kind of, the the headline kind of puts a, a particular frame around the issue, which includes China very prominently, but then excludes a whole bunch of other stuff that might be more relevant.、Um, and in this case, you know, kind of the the particular the corruption and the particular situation in Guinea-Bissau is is, is important. It took 
took me a little bit of extra reading because you know Guinea-Bissau is sometimes not on my radar, but uh, to to realize that the one of the one of the reasons that this um, that this is happening now is because Guinea-Bissau went through its own you know went through a military coup in 2012 and has been has kind of regained democracy in 2014. Um, so it's part of a bigger program of rejoining the world um, that Guinea-Bissau has been going through. So the World Bank has announced that they're coming back to Guinea-Bissau, they're going to be loaning to them again after suspending loans after the coup. Um, you know, ECOWAS, the European Union, all of these all of these bodies have, have kind of re, re-entered Guinea-Bissau in the sense, you know, kind of that they're, that they're kind of back with, with new engagement and new support now that there's a, a, a you know, kind of a, go- a better government. So all of that makes a lot more sense. You know, kind of the, the, the ban makes a lot more sense when you see it in that context rather than the situation of like, oh, suddenly like Chinese demand exploded, you know. Um, and and also, you know, the the other obviously, obviously important issue is what Chinese demand means in the in the timber. Well, let's talk about that case. because I think this is one of the most salient points here, and this is where I get a little bit frustrated with the conservation movement, in part because they don't actually define what Chinese demand means. Now, a lot of Chinese timber and natural resources, be it you know minerals, oil, whatnot, goes to China. But China being the factory of the world, and it still is the factory of the world, despite the fact that it is trying to offshore more and more of its low-end factories to, say, places like Africa or South Asia, uh, nonetheless, we as global consumers of Chinese-made products are very much a part of that demand. And that's the part of the conversation that I feel is missing, because anybody who shops at Target, who shops at Walmart, who shops at any of the major stores, even here in Vietnam for wood products or for any of the the made-in-China products, think of your iPhone or your Android phone. A lot of that has minerals from the DRC. It has a lot of, you know, again, conflict minerals. Even though the apples of the world are saying they're reducing it, there's still a lot there. And so I guess we are complicit in the demand, and I wish that was more contextualized in the story. Just a little bit of a point here on what Cobus was saying with regards to to Guinea-Bissau. It's a tiny little speck of a country that there's a very good chance you're like Cobus and you haven't paid much attention to it. Uh, 1.7 million people, former Portuguese colony. Uh, really, it's claimed to fame over the past five to ten years as is that it's a major transit point uh, for South American cocaine on the way to, to Europe. Once again, taking advantage of the lawlessness that that exists there and the ability to bribe corrupt officials, just as what's happening in the timber sector. And so, Cobus, I guess, you know, we've talked about illegal logging in places like Gabon and the Republic of Congo. And in the Republic of Congo, it turned out that a lot of the Chinese logging wasn't technically illegal from the point of view of the Chinese. What was happening was the corrupt officials there were providing... Uh, counterfeit, fake, doctored, or illegitimate licenses to log. And so once again, when we try to assign responsibility, I'm not trying to assign blame here. I'm trying to identify where the source of the problem is. It is not as simple as simply saying the Chinese are raping and pillaging Africa's natural resources. Yeah, it's you know it's it's so important to try and kind of break down that monolithic concept of China, um, because you know some of these NGOs that provided the the investigations for the Guinea-Bissau case, they actually they use um, figures coming from Chinese customs services, you know. So it's you know kind of it it isn't the situation where China is this kind of you know kind of black hole into which the entire world's commodities are being sucked. 
uh, illegitimately. You know, kind of it's more a situation that that China is is a complicated, powerful state. You know, kind of that, that houses a lot of demand, and that you can actually work with Chinese authorities. I think to a certain extent, to actually see where this stuff is going. The the problem more for me is that there is. I think it, it's a difficult thing frequently to actually really talk very bluntly. Um, about African corruption, um, you know, kind of because it's seen, I think, as Afro-pessimist, it's seen as 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 you know, kind of feeding into into certain kind of stereotypes, um, you know. And I think, um, you know, kind of our previous guest Tom Burgess is from from um, from Financial Times. He he has a new big new book out about corruption in Africa, and I think that book is going to help to kind of kickstart the conversation about this a little bit because corruption in Africa is central to this issue. Um, you know, kind of the you can't really blame the demand alone. You have to look at like what facilitated the the feeding of this demand, and and then you have to come into the the real kind of like dirty details of of how governance works in Africa. But that isn't that that question of the blame that goes back to the media framing in part because oftentimes with NGOs. Uh, they oftentimes, what I find, is like to condense an issue down to a, a binary choice, good and bad. Uh, so, and, and that doesn't always work in Africa. And uh, Wang Xiaoxue, who, again, is the, the China researcher at the International Institute for Environment and Development, she came out with an excellent piece talking about Africa's informal economy. Now, let me just kind of define a couple terms here so that can set up our conversation here. The informal sector is that part of the economy that is beyond the government's control, whereas the formal sector, obviously, is the part of the economy that is within the government's control. I think for so many Westerners where we live in highly regulated societies, where the formal sector dominates, it's very difficult for, un- for us to understand how fluid the informal sector is. And oftentimes we look at it as, well, if it's not in the formal sector, it's by definition illegal in this gray market, when in fact it always isn't. And so I think this is a very key point here. What she defines here in the informal sector is that 90%, and this is her estimate, uh, and I don't think there's any real hard data on this, but 90% of economic activity in Africa often happens in the informal sector. So it's extremely difficult to regulate. It's extremely difficult to monitor. And I think going back to your point, Cobus, about how do we understand where the supply comes from, a lot of it seems to be coming from this informal economy. You know, kind of the, it it also, you know, kind of, yeah, there's so many, so many things to say about this all at once. Um, you know, kind of, it, it so frequently depends on the the relationship between very small local communities um, and their own environment. Um, you know, kind of, and there was a very interesting um, quote, I think, in her article. Um, where she said that um, a village in Cameroon told her the government could take away our land and trees at any moment, so we'd rather sell the trees to the Chinese as soon as we can. You know, kind of. So I think there you have a little bit of <laughs> of a, a, a thumbnail kind of portrait of why the situation is so difficult to to deal with, because there's a, a complete lack of trust between the government and the people. You know, kind of. There's a long history of arbitrary and in, unjust kind of you know acts by the government. So the government as a as a governing body has much less legitimacy you know kind of than in many other countries so you know kind of just just uh, just to survive frequently people have to kind of disregard the government or undercut the government so you know kind of in a situation where you, where the government is supposed to to govern these resources for for the entire country and for the rest of the world you know to make sure that we have forests in the future that becomes a, a, a really difficult situation um 
because the people have to actually undercut the government just in order to survive. And then, you know, and then you can see, you know, kind of it, that kind of circles us back to the issue of demand, because then you can see how actual real, you know, Chinese demand and real high prices can really kick off a, an environmental disaster without China really having any real uh, control over that. Um, you know, kind of it, 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 the, the problem sits completely in the, on the African side. Um, China is only this kind of like, this is the magnet, you know, it has this kind of, you know, kind of attraction, attraction power that kind of that is where all the the reason the commodities essentially just like flow over, you know, kind of to um, to China without China necessarily even, you know, kind of seeking it out. Sure. Now that role of the government is very interesting because, in many ways, the government is actually a participant in it. Oftentimes, as we talked about in the Republic of Congo, uh, many corrupt government forestry officials are actively involved in the illegal trade. And again, I think that's another concept that's difficult for Westerners to, to comprehend sometimes when you look at governance issues in Africa, to see that the government is an antagonist. They're not a protagonist. And that makes it very complicated. Let me read a quote here uh, from Xiaoxue's report. And this is her speaking. And uh, it says, quote, While Chinese investors and traders are at times accused of resource plunder or neocolonialism in the Western media, I have found that the reception on the ground, especially among the rural poor, can be much more nuanced. Indeed, some rural communities seem to welcome the opportunities to trade timber, minerals, and agricultural products. And I think that, again, the word nuanced is the one that that really struck me because that that's very much consistent with what I found on the ground in Africa by when you talk to people who are actually engaging in business and in commerce and you know dealing with these kind of resource issues they have a much more complicated outlook than the more binary governmental uh, NGO type of perspective which you know oftentimes screams at the top of their lungs in order to attract attention you know what's your take on on that quote there yeah I also agreed with it um you know, the I I think one also one has to look at what what governments and NGOs have at stake. You know, um, and you know, kind of governments have a lot have a lot um, invested in in obviously in, in promoting the idea that they are legitimate legitimate actors to to govern. Um, you know, so in that sense, you know, kind of like when when a government official, it's 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 a very natural thing for a government official to blame an outside an outside actor rather than themselves, obviously. Um, you know, kind of NGOs have to they have to attract funding, which means they have to stay in the news. And as we've experienced, you know, you know ourselves, China attracts attention. You know, kind of so putting China in a, in a headline about Africa, it attracts attention. It's it's a, you know kind of it's it's clickbait basically. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of so you need in order to 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 feel to, to create the impression that you're relevant and to create the impression that you as an NGO have you have your finger on the pulse. You know, you, you need you need to message. You know, kind of like all media people, you need something that's that's consumable in a in a in in a, in a flash. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, you have to create an, a, a feeling that. What we're doing here is important and contemporary and, you know, kind of on the cutting edge and China's on the cutting edge. So, exactly, you know, kind of that situation. So, um, and that's not to kind of, I'm, I'm painting with a very broad brush here and I don't want to, and, you know, kind of uh, like NGOs do very important work, but they they sit under, they work under certain particular constraints. And one, and one thing is a kind of a year-to-year Budget that needs to re- be renewed, and uh, you know, kind of year to year, where you have to prove that you that you created a certain amount of awareness, you know, kind of to donors. And this is one way that they do it. You know, kind of is by like, you know, kind of the, we got so many clicks, we got so many hits. So this is, you know, um, 
And nuance doesn't help that. Nuance makes that very difficult to do that. Let me make one minor correction. I said at the top of the show that 90% of Africa's economy uh, is in the informal sector. That's a mistake, actually. It's nine out of 10 people work in the informal sector. So I want to make sure I quote Xiao Xue correctly on that. Um, You know, and what she kind of talks about in this informal sector, when you have nine out of 10 people potentially working in this this area, it, it disproportionately affects women and children. And I think that's a very important distinction to make here. But what's interesting is how in, in how the Chinese are operating in this informal economy. And, and before we get accused of being too pro-Chinese on this particular podcast, this is where I think the negative side of it is. The Chinese are taking full advantage of the, the informal characteristics and the lack of oversight to operate largely independent of any oversight or regulation. And what little regulation is actually there is often corruptible. So this is where we see the, the, the danger to the environment and what the difference between the Chinese and, say, maybe previous foreign powers who came to Africa for natural resources is that the Chinese are bringing in mechanization. So when we're talking about the cutting of timber across Africa, what used to be done, say, in the 19th or 18th century, done by hand or oftentimes by, by forced labor, now is being done by heavy machinery. And so the pace of environmental destruction operating in this informal economy is mind-boggling. And I think that's where my big concern comes in. And, and also because the Chinese presence in Africa is so deregulated from the Chinese side. Again, we misunderstand oftentimes that the Chinese are operating as a centralized entity. And of course, you, we've talked about this for years on the show, that the Chinese are very fragmented. There is no kind of order to their operations in Africa, or anywhere for that matter in the world. And so I guess in some ways, the, the lack of accountability, regulation, and governance allows um, corruption, it allows over, you know, over logging, you know, environmental destruction. And once the trees are gone, once the resources are gone, the Chinese just pack up and leave. And I think that is really where my big concern comes from with respect to the Chinese and what they're doing with respect to natural resources. Yeah, it's such a depressing situation. I mean, that's the wildlife problem, too. I mean, even in your own country in South Africa, probably the best regulated country in all of Africa. And yet in Kruger National Park, the government, the most well-funded wildlife protection you know, service in all of Africa, still can't bring it under control. Yeah, and there's you know kind of the, it's a kind of open secret in South Africa that not that's a certain uh, number of of game ranges in those national parks and also some of the of of um, the owners of wildlife farms because South Africa has a big wildlife farm sector, um, you know kind of that that both that feeds both hunting and tourism, um, that they are both the the farmers and the and the game ranges are complicit with the poachers. Yeah. Um, you know that they they are facilitating the poaching. Um, you know, kind of. So <laughs> it's, it's yeah, it's a, it's a very depressing situation. No, it is. And I guess our main takeaway from our conversation today, and what kind of what both Cobus and I are putting forth, is that. The, the situation is thoroughly depressing. There's no, deba- no <laughs> doubt about it. I mean, Africa's natural resources are endangered across the board, uh, not just by the Chinese, but in many respects by Africans themselves and the lack of governance and accountability there. But again, what I suggested people take away, and the main talking point here is that word nuance that Xiao Xue put forward in her piece. And I recommend that you check out her piece. It's called China-Africa Trade and Investment Benefiting, Af- Benefiting Africa's Rural Informal economy, question mark. Uh, And it's a fantastic piece. Go to IIED.org and you can find it there. Uh, And of course, go to the Africa Report and you can look up the Guinea-Bissau pieces uh, there as well.
well. So um, we're going to try and get Xiao Xue to join us. She's been on the show before. We'd like to have her back to talk about this in part because it does seem like such a key part of the natural resources question that is very poorly understood. And when it often is covered, it's covered in kind of polemic terms. And, and the, you know, as Kobus talked about, the, the economics of NGO fundraising don't always lend themselves to nuance. So an absolutely fascinating issue. So from uh, Johannesburg, the last time before you take off, uh, where can people follow you on, online if they want to follow your adventures in Hungary? <laughs> um, I'm on our Facebook page all the time. That's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And I'm on Twitter at Stadenesk, S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And we've got about a quarter of a million people joining us on Facebook for a very, very lively conversation. We'd love to have you come and check us out. Uh, once again, that's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Kobus and I are updating the page almost every day. Oh, no, actually every day, but almost 24 hours. Uh, so it's a great news feed on all the top headlines related to China and Africa. Uh, I'm tweeting almost every day over at Twitter at eolander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. And also every Monday, we've got a fantastic newsletter that goes out with a digest of the top news uh, for the week in Af- China-Africa relations. We include our podcast, academic research, and, and a handful of, uh, of articles from the week. So if you're really not that intent on uh, following China-Africa relations too closely, this is a great way to get a weekly digest of what's going on. Just head to our webpage at ChinaAfricaProject.com. There's sign-up buttons all over, and you can just put your email in, and we'll send you an email every week with those headlines. So we'll be back again soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.